Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Living Water, and this is a podcast where we're looking at water or the lack of it to see if we can see some old stories in a new way. And I want to begin this podcast by saying that the Bible is really a library of books. It's not a book per se, and this is why it's hard to read. You can't simply go to the local library and pull books randomly off the shelf, and you really can't do that with Bible stories either. But I will say that even though the Bible is a library of text, and I like to tell my third graders in Bible club that it's written by a thousand people over a thousand years, Sometimes a place will occur again and again and again. And today I want us to look at Bethel or Bethel, house of God. Bethel is one of these places, very, very important place in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, I could tick off a few places where you can find Bethel in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 12, Abram uh, pitched a tent there. And this is Abram who chooses to leave a city and follow God and to be different. I like to say that the story of us doesn't begin with Genesis 1 through 11, but begins with Genesis chapter 12, when Abram makes that decision to be different in the way that God asked him to be different, which means that Bethel appears just right there at the very beginning. The most famous, though, occurrence of Bethel is Genesis chapter 28, with Jacob fleeing the wrath of his murderous uh, brother. You may recall that uh, that these are twins, and Jacob is the second son. He's not supposed to receive the birthright, but he steals it from his old blind father, Isaac. And Esau uh, sold his birthright for a mess of pottage because he's a man who lives by his appetites and can't see right, can't see around the corner. But when he learns that his birthright has been stolen, uh, he wants to kill Jacob. And while Jacob is on the run, uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob learned some things. You know, there are more verses on Jacob in the Bible than just about any other Bible figure, except perhaps for Jesus. We know Jacob as a boy. We know Jacob as a young man. We know him in middle age, and we even know him as an old man. And his name means trickster, and it's not always a pretty story, like this being on the run from his brother. Jacob is just, just very, very human and not attractive in some ways. But Jacob can grow, and I think this is why Jacob becomes the the emblem, even the name of the nation, is because even though he's not perfect, uh, he can learn. And here at Bethel, he falls asleep and has a dream of a ladder with angels ascending and descending upon it. Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder happens in Genesis chapter 28 at Bethel. Um, and these angels represent the Jacob that is and the Jacob that will be. These, these angels represent us as an unfinished product. We can see, we can see the, the goal from here. Sometimes we have moments of shining transcendence, and then sometimes we have moments of crashing, uh, crashing imbecility, and we are a mixed bag of nuts. But God can work with us when we grow. And so this is the dream that Jacob has uh, at Bethel. Later in Genesis chapter 35, Bethel appears again as the place where Jacob officially becomes Israel. So it's a very, very important place. It's very famous in the Hebrew scriptures, a place to go to again and again. But the story I want to discuss today is more infamous than famous. We actually mentioned it back in episode five, which is early part of uh, of last fall. And I want to go into it with a little more detail here with something very terrible that happens at Bethel. It's a travesty, and it happens when Jeroboam becomes the first king of the nation of Israel in the divided kingdom. 
Okay, when I say words divided kingdom, this is why the Old Testament is hard to read. Um, I need to go over a timeline with you so that you can place this event and you can understand what's happening. And a timeline is really healthy and helpful. If you don't have one, you might want to take a pen and write down what I'm saying to you. If you want to just look at general dates, and these aren't, these aren't precise, but they get your mind around things, you can say 2000 BC. 2000 BC is the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. That's that original Bethel story, and that's, that's the call of Abraham to leave a city and go be different. Okay, so that's, that's the beginning, 2000 B.C. And then 1500 B.C. would be the flight from Egypt. So that's the rescue of slaves uh, living in Egypt and brought back through the wilderness and promised uh, a promised land. That's 1500 B.C. And then 1000 B.C., so we're working our timeline, 1000 B.C. would be King David. King David, this would be a united country under a monarchy with 12 tribes and probably was never better uh, for them than under David. And then just 100 years later, we'll say 900 B.C., uh, that's the beginning of the divided kingdom. So what happens is that Solomon, by the time you get to Solomon's children or Solomon's son, uh, the kingdom has split. There's been tensions over the cost of the temple. There have been tensions over the the aristocracy of the South versus the the majority of the North, if you will. Uh, there's some tensions over uh, representation, just lots of things simmer over to a boil. And what happens in effect 900 years before Jesus' birth is that there are 10 tribes in the North. I like to call them counties to get my mind around it. 10 counties in the North comprising a larger nation of Israel and a smaller country of Judah in the South with two counties and the capital city of Jerusalem. Now, as it would turn out, Israel would be more prosperous but less stable than Judah in the south in that it didn't have a capital city. So it, it had it had a better economy perhaps for a while, but it would fall in the year 722 BC, if you want to add that to your timeline. Judah would later fall to the Babylonians in 586 BC. Israel would fall to the Assyrians. So now you've got a biblical timeline to help you kind of understand uh, what it means when you talk about Israel versus Judah, or a king of Judah, or a king of Israel, or a capital in Jerusalem, or a capital in Samaria. I mean, all these things, if, if you understand that now what was once one country is now two countries, uh, you can begin to get your mind around what you're reading. And what we what we read in, in, first, in the first book of Kings, uh, chapter 12, is that Jeroboam decides to build a worship center at Bethel. He, he wants to build something that will keep people from continuing to travel to Jerusalem for the worship of God because the temple's not in his country anymore. I mean, Jeroboam is a practical dude. What, what he wants to do is, is keep people from being lured down to the capital city of Judah because it's not his country, and he wants to keep the money uh, within the borders of his country. So he builds an elaborate worship center. I, I won't even call it a temple. I'll simply call it a, a a worship space on this historic spot. So everybody knows Bethel, the house of God, this place where they can go back and see where Bible stories happened again and again and again. And he's got an altar there, and it's complete with golden calves around the side. Now, that may sound strange to you. Remember the, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt have no other gods but me. Uh, but I want you to understand that, that Jeroboam was a practical guy, and he realized that people, yes, they did follow Israel's God, but some of them might have followed the golden calf as well, the, followed the Canaanite gods. Kind of a good way to get your mind around this is to say that before the final exile in 586 B.C., 
uh, God's people were pretty much monolatrists as opposed to monotheists. And a monolatrist would say uh, that, yes, God is God, and God demands my uh, attention and my loyalty, but there are other gods as well. When they returned from exile in Babylon, they came back different people. They realized that God was with them way out there, which means that God is the only God. Thou shalt have no other gods but me means simply that. I'm I'm it. There is no the, the golden calf isn't real. And I want to say also something to you with regards to water. And here's where water becomes a lens through which we see this. Golden calves were rain gods. Uh, Baal, okay, Baal, the, the, the bull, if you will, was a storm god. And he's, he's the god of rain, the sustenance. If they don't get rain in the winter, they don't have crops to grow and they can't survive. And so I, I think it's fair to say what would happen with, with God's people in this point in time is they, they would worship God, but they might also worship a golden calf on the side just to hedge their bets, just to make sure that something good would happen for them. And they were tempted to do this all the time. Not only did you have your neighbors with their golden calves, and, and they, were, they were praying for rain, but they also saw that the land around them could become idolatrous. The land around them could represent the same thing. In biblical in biblical forests, in which they did have some some trees, and, and in, a, in a land that's really hot with very little water, you've got sort of a biblical flora and fauna. And one of the predominant trees would be the oak tree, and they saw the oak tree as Baal. It, the oak tree would represent Baal. If they didn't have a golden calf, they could simply worship a tree. And usually, when you see an oak tree over there, it's also in symbiosis with the pistachio tree. It's a smaller tree. And I'll just have to look up why they're always together. But when you see an oak, you always see a pistachio underneath. I'm sure they're sharing a root system or or water source or something, but they're always together so that people living at that time would call the oak tree Baal, the storm god, and they would call the pistachio tree Asherah, which is the fertility goddess, which means that if you were to just thumb through Jeremiah uh, chapter 3, he is so angry uh, with people who should know better uh, falling after false gods and falling after uh, uh, the, the neighbor's beliefs, if you will, that he accuses them of cavorting under the trees that could only be described as PG at best. I mean, this, just keep that chapter away from the kids. Uh, it is, he's so angry, but this is what they would do. If, if these trees represented fertility, then they would go be fertile under there. Jeroboam was probably doing something more practical, just having a one-stop shop to keep people from going to Jerusalem to spend money, go ahead and worship Yahweh here on the mountain. And oh, by by the way, while you're here, you can throw a few shekels to, towards the golden calf. Right. The problem with this is is not only not only does this make God angry because God is a jealous God, and there shall be no other gods but Me. God spells it out. The other problem is that if you follow other gods, then you follow their ethics. The people who lived in a world of Baal and Asherah uh, didn't treat people the same way as people who living under uh, the rule of the Ten Commandments and the rule of Israel's God. Remember from the very beginning, uh, Israel's God demanded that the poor be fed and and children be protected and people be housed and and, and right and that they would be different. They would seek justice and righteousness and peace and equity. Uh, one of the principles of the Sabbath is that kings rest and slaves rest and God rests with them. Equality and equanimity are both ideas that are, that are baked into being different in this way that the God that God asks us to be different. And so, if we follow a neighbor's God, we might also follow uh, their own their own ways and 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 the misuse of other people, perhaps. 
and just not just being sorry, quite frankly. And this displeased God greatly. So that we're told that in First Kings chapter thirteen, it's a fun, fun little, fun little snapshot here in the Bible that has to do with Bethel. Jeroboam is mighty pleased with his with his business. It must be good. I, for those of you who live in the South, I can only imagine his worship centers like a Bucky's. He's got everything there. Uh, nobody's going to Jerusalem anymore. The the money's is is ringing in the coffers. And so this this man from Judah appears, a man of God from Judah. We don't know the prophet's name, but he's. But I want to remind you that in in the Hebrew Scriptures, when God's people asked for kings, God would say, "You can have a king, but you're always going to have a prophet to speak truth to you." I've spoken about this in many of these episodes. And so this prophet goes and speaks the truth to Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, 900 BC, at his brand new worship center at Bethel. First Kings 13. While Jeroboam was standing by the altar to offer incense, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. So remember, he's from, the man of God's from the south in Judah, but now he's in Israel in the north uh, and speaks the word at Bethel and proclaimed against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, O altar, thus says the Lord, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you, the priest of the high places who offer incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. He gave the sign the same day, saying that this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. The altar shall be poured down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Wow. Fast forward 300 years to the reign of a king, Josiah of Judah who was born just as the prophet said that he would. It's actually the story of Josiah is told in 2 Kings chapter 23, just a little farther down in the library that we call the altar. Josiah was a reforming king. Uh, Josiah wanted to do away with, with the idols, if you will, do away with the missteps, do away with the lazy religion uh, that had happened in Judah at that time. And so what he wanted to do, and, and, and of course, Israel has already disappeared. If you look at the timeline, uh, Judah will shortly disappear uh, from the Babylonians, and some of this will be hastened by Josiah's own death. He ruled as the king from 640 to 609 when he was killed in battle against a pharaoh named Necho in the shadow of a fortress called Megiddo, a place so thought over over the centuries that the writer of Revelation dreamed that Megiddo would be the place of the final battle between good and evil, and he used a Greek name called Armageddon. So Josiah would be killed at Armageddon, but not before, not before attempting to shore up the religion of the nation. And one of these things that he wanted to do was go up there to Bethel, because even though Israel had disappeared, uh, this worship center had not. It continued to be used by whoever was living around that area, and he wanted to get rid of all the uh, egregious, if you will, examples of idolatry uh, within within his sphere of, of rule or sphere of influence, and this includes destroying idols. He instituted the Passover, got him reading the Bible, got rid of the idols. That's Josiah. But we're told at 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 15, this is what happens. Hey, the prophet was right. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place, erected by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He pulled down that altar along with the high place. He burned the high place, crushing it to dust. He also burned the sacred pole. High places and sacred poles would be platforms for altars or a pole that you might worship. 
As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there. The, the tombs were there on the mount. And he went and he took the bones out of the tombs and he burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed when Jeroboam stood by the altar at the festival. He turned and looked up at the tomb of the man of God who had predicted these things. Now, I want to say a word about defilement here. They believed that uh, if you could defile something, say with bones, then it would make it unclean and unusable forever. You can It's, it's haunting, but you can actually walk across the, the Mount of Bethel today, and you can see where it had been destroyed, and you can see where it had been defiled. I mean, there's nothing left there but just a just a, a pad of rock, if you will, where, where bones were strewn upon it. So it was never worshipped in uh, again. Another example from Scripture is Mount Gerizim. So Mount Gerizim was the temple of the uh, of the Samaritans, we're told that the Samaritans would build a copy-paste temple after Ezra, the book, in the book of Ezra, they refused to let the Samaritans participate with them in the building of the temple in, Ju- in Judah when they returned from exile in Babylon. If all this sounds really confusing, just remember this, the, the, the exiles j- has just come home, they're rebuilding uh, their worship space, and the Samaritans offer to help, saying that they're the Israelites who had disappeared some 200 years before with the Assyrians, and God's people said, no, you're not. You, you are displaced Assyrian people, and which means that you don't have the ethics that we do, which means that you might have the polluted uh, ideas of idols that 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 you did, uh, perhaps. And and so there's no fight like a family fight, but the Samaritans and the the Hebrews just didn't get along. And so that sets up the all the disagreements, if you will, uh, between the two in the Gospels where Jesus is walking through Samaritan lands. But they had their own temple. So as a result, they went and they built this copy-paste temple on Mount Gerizim, which is not very far from Bethel. Uh, and it, too, was defiled in the late Roman era when Roman tourists, if you will, Roman Christians came down and built a Byzantine uh, worship site on the top of Mount Gerizim. I, I'm pretty sure they figured they were honoring it or at least marking it as a biblical site. But what they did is they rendered it unclean forever for the Samaritans. So to this day, the 800 Samaritans left on the planet, most of them living on that mount, do their sacrificing and their worship at the base of what had formerly been their temple, but had been defiled. I remember a story from the Crusader era where where an abbot or a bishop had invited one of the caliphs who now ruled Jerusalem to come into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and pray. And the caliph said, I cannot come in and pray. Thank you for your invitation. But if I do that, your church will be Muslim forever. So this idea of defilement uh, or ruining something so that it can't be used is a big deal in Scripture. Okay, what's the point of it all? Well, I think I think what God what displeases God the most about Bethel and Jeroboam's use of it is that religion— is not a checked box, but rather a relationship. I mean, Jeroboam had created a great checked box. You could get everything you wanted there, right? You could worship God, but you could also hedge your bets all right there in the same spot with your golden calf. And there's no way to know if Amos uh, spoke to Jeroboam at Bethel or where he spoke to Jeroboam, but we do know that Amos is the oldest prophet in Scripture in terms of the words. So when you think about prophets, you've got stories by prophets like Amos or Jeremiah or or Isaiah. And then you've got stories about prophets like Elijah and Elisha. Uh, Amos is the oldest anthology of the prophet's words, if you will. And and it it takes place right at the time of Jeroboam and Bethel. And while there's no way to know for sure if, if he's speaking this to Jeroboam 
here or is saying it to him somewhere else, I can only imagine that Amos and the man from Judah who prophesied about the bones were saying the same things to the same dude. And in Amos chapter 5, beginning with the 21st verse, this is God's word through this prophet to, to Jeroboam. I hate, I despise your festivals. That's a pretty strong word. And Jeroboam, I'm sure, had some pretty music and, and, and some nice worship there to keep people from going down to Jerusalem to spend their money. I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. The offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I'll say this one more time. Religion is not a checkbox, but a relationship. And it's a relationship that demands righteousness, both inwardly and outwardly. It demands justice, both within our souls, but also with our hands. It demands that we care for other people so that justice can roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And this is exactly the image that Martin Luther King would use uh, in his famous I Have a Dream speech in Washington on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This is exactly uh, the message that God wants God's people to have, which is the world is made better when we become different in the way that Abram was asked to become different in Genesis chapter 12. Not to hedge, but to trust. Uh, They would come back home after being taken far, far away uh, to Babylon. They would come back realizing that God is God over all. There is no other little God to turn to, and God will give them rain, and God will also give them love, and most importantly, God will give them grace. So you can see, although it's a library, and a lot of these are different places and different times, these stories hang together in marvelous ways, and many of them hang together in the same place again and again and again, like Bethel. Well, thanks, everybody. We'll catch you next time with a Holy Week story.